0: Friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me in them to first Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2. This morning we're reading verses 8 to 10. Uh, and just to remind you, we're in a series called Living as God's Household, uh, because one of the primary metaphors of the church is the family of God, the household of God. And the question that we're asking this morning is: in this household, in God's household, the family of faith, how are godly men and women to conduct themselves? And so I do want to give you an overview of the plan of what's going on the next four weeks. Uh, Today, we're looking at 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 10. Uh, Then next week, we're actually going to skip verses 11 to 15. What we're going to do is uh, next week, Pastor Isaac is going to preach on 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for overseers or the qualifications for deacons. The following week, uh, our pastoral interns will preach on the qualifications for deacons And then the third week, finish off the chapter, The Mystery of Godliness. Then four weeks later, we're going to return back to the end of chapter 2. Now, this is done uh, strategically. I hope that you'll see, and you have to trust me, that understanding uh, 1 Timothy 2, to 15 in the context of 1 Timothy 3 will actually be more helpful. Now, if you're wondering what's going on there, if you just have a Bible, you can begin to read it, begin to think through uh, what the Word of God here is saying, and you'll see why we've decided to make that um, choice. Well, before we get into the preaching of God's Word, I invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. You know, standing is a way of showing reverence for God. It's a way of receiving it with humility as the Lord speaks to us. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, reading verses 8 to 9, hear now the word of the Lord. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and join me now as we pray. Good and gracious Father, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word now. We know that your word gives life. It's like the food we eat and the water we drink. So feed us and help us to understand it. Not simply that we would grow in knowledge, but we would grow in godliness of our lives, of our character, that through us, you would be pleased, that you would be honored. Bless our time now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the scriptures are full of examples of godly men and godly women. And so, if I were to ask you to name a few who would come to mind, uh, if you're a man, most likely you're thinking of characters like Joseph or Boaz or Daniel. Uh, these men lived lives worthy of emulation. And so, it's really no surprise to me that about the, a third of the men in our church are named Daniel. Uh, if you ever thought to ask, you know, why is it just a really popular name? Well, I think if you ask their parents, it's because parents want their sons to grow up to be courageous and um, trusting God like Daniel did. That and the fact that I think few parents are willing to name their sons Boaz. But, you know, Daniel it is. Joseph it is. And then what about the women in the, the Bible? You think of names like Ruth, Esther, the Proverbs 31 woman. Right? There are stellar examples of those who live with resolute faith. Ruth, Covenanted with her mother-in-law, Naomi, Esther was willing to sacrifice her life for her people. The Proverbs 31 is a paragon of virtue. It's clear the Bible is filled with these kinds of examples, godly men and godly women. If I ask a little more personal question, well, what about in your life? In your life, are there examples of godly men and godly women? You know, that I was blessed by the Lord in that way. When I was in high school, we had a youth director who worked full-time as a programmer but gave all of his Friday evenings, his Saturdays, his Sundays to serve, volunteer for the youth. He modeled generosity and sacrifice and service. He was such a blessing in my life. I think of my college mentor who showed me what it meant to love God through obedience and faithfulness and reading God's word. I mean, do you have people like that? And maybe to go one step more personally, What about here in this church? Whether you're new to this church or you've been attending for a while, do you see and find godly men and women here at Cornerstone? Or maybe one step deeper, are you seeking to be a godly man and a godly woman here at Cornerstone? Can you honestly say with Apostle Paul, looking at those around you, be imitators of me as I am of Christ? Now, it's my prayer that this church wouldn't just be filled with Sunday Christians, nominal believers, cultural believers, those who are just trying to be good and religious. And so you dress up on your Sunday best and you come to church and you leave. And the rest of your faith is divorced from the week. That's not my prayer. That's not my hope. I, t- I hope it's not yours. And what we're desiring is that the Lord would fill this place, this family of faith with those who desire to be godly men and godly women. But here's the question. If we earnestly prayed for those things and God answered them, what would the church look like? What would actually be different about the men and women in the church? And to answer that question, we could go through many different passages of scripture, but first Timothy two gives us a vision, a glimpse of what that could look like. Now, Paul begins his, this passage in verse eight, simply by writing, I desire then that in every place. And when he says, I desire in every place, what he means is what I'm about to say is true of Christians everywhere. In every place, it's not just true of the church in Ephesus, it's true of the church in Lansdale. It's not just true for Christians in 60 AD, it's true of Christians here in 2023. So Paul is saying, what I'm writing is to address all people, not just then and there, but believers here and now. And so what I wanna do today as we look at this passage is see how Paul goes on to address men and then how Paul goes on to address women. Now that's not a cue for you to fall asleep during the other part. But it's important for us to understand what God's vision is, at least according to 1 Timothy 2, of both so that we can be a family that encourages, praises, celebrates these things in one another. I would even go far as to say that if you're single and you're considering getting married, that these are the type of things you should consider in the other person. And so we begin with Paul addressing men. Let's start here. Verse eight begins like this. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, the very first description of a godly man here is a man who prays, a prayerful man. Now stop and think about that for a moment. What does it mean to be prayerful? To be prayerful, what is prayer? It's dependence on the Lord. It's conversation with the Lord because you're turning to him. In your times of need, in your times of weakness, even in your times of strength, it's a reliance upon the Lord. Now, the prayerfulness in a man's life runs contrary to what the world puts forth as masculinity. Because the cultural view of a man is one who is strong, one who is independent. Our culture loves uh, vi- versions of, of these self-made men. And that's why we're attracted to those like stories of a uh, billionaire entrepreneurs, people like Elon Musk or Steve jobs or, you know, Phil Knight who founded Nike, like these stories of men who overcame obstacles and odds and they're self-made men. And we think, wow, that that's amazing. We celebrate those kinds of things, but a prayerful man is not a self-made man. It's not a man who goes around saying, I can do it but a man who wholly depends on God and says, my God can do it. Prayerful men are those who don't just turn to prayer as a last resort, but it's their first response and their last response. So just ask a question to the men in this room, are you prayerful? Is your life marked by dependence upon God. Or do you only reach for prayer as a last resort? When it becomes abundantly clear that you've tried everything you can in your own power, with your own planning, with your own wisdom, and you finally realize, okay, I can't do it on my own. And then then only do you turn to the Lord in prayer. Godly men in the church should be prayerful men. But then Paul goes on to expand on that. He further elaborates, lifting holy hands. And it's easy to confuse the emphasis of this verse. It's not on the posture of actually lifting up your hands. There are all all sorts of ways to pray, right? Hands lifted, hands folded, eyes closed, thumbs in, elbows out, knees bent, (laughs) feet apart, turn around, tongue out, you name it, you can pray in that manner. Paul is saying, not lift up your hands, he's saying lift up holy hands. Now what does holy hands mean? Psalm 24 verses three and four helps us understand it. When King David says in the Psalm, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And what David here is saying is that who enters into the presence of God, and that's what prayer is entering in the presence of God, those who have clean hands, holy hands. And this isn't a reference to to physical cleanliness, but spiritual cleanliness, because Paul then says, what does it mean to have clean hands? It means to have a pure heart, right? So praying with holy hands means praying with purity and holiness. Why do you need that when you pray? Well, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Godly men in the church, need not just be prayerful, but also pure and holy. And there are two ways I wanna talk about this briefly to address the men in the church. Two ways that men should seek to be pure. First is physically. Keeping your conduct before the Lord holy and blameless. You know, in our day and age, physical purity is one of the first things compromised. Even among Christians, sometimes even more among Christians because they know they can then turn to the Lord for forgiveness. So Christian men need to be vigorous in this. And this is why Apostle Paul, actually he's writing to Timothy. Timothy's a pastor. And he writes in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And more specifically, not just to young single men, but to those who are unmarried or those who are married, we receive the warning of Hebrews 13, verse four, where we read these words, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. You know, godly men are those who keep themselves pure physically before the Lord, but it's not just physical. It has to be of the heart as well because merely staying away or abstaining from outward things, doesn't guarantee that you have a pure heart. What are you treasuring and cherishing? What's moving your affections and stirring your desires? You may be able to keep away from sin with your hands and yet all the while harbor it deeply in your hearts. And Jesus knew that to be true. So he calls it out in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I'm sure there are many men who can say, well, I've kept that one. I've been pure. But Jesus nails you to the wall and says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The purity God desires is not just physical purity, but purity of the heart, not just external, but internal, not just outward, but inward. So godly men in the church should be prayerful and they should seek purity. But last and finally, godly men should be peacemakers. Paul ends verse 8 by saying this, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The men in God's household should not be prone to erupting in anger and being combative and argumentative. Now, sometimes we excuse those kinds of things and we say, oh, someone who's quarreling or angry, they're just really passionate. They're really zealous. They have conviction, but God is desiring men who make peace and keep peace. And that's why he promises a blessing for those kinds of men. Let's go back to the Beatitudes. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are who? The peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, men of Cornerstone, are you striving for peace among others? Are you willing to even die for the sake of peace? Bite your tongue. Walk away. You know, the world says that real men don't back down. Men don't walk away from a fight. You know what the Bible says? Real men live according to James 1. They are quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I wonder what it would look like in this church if there were men who were so godly that they desired to be prayerful, pure, and peaceful. What would the church look like? How much health would there be if our men were less self-reliant and more God-dependent? Guarding their hearts and seeking to live holy lives. Less argumentative and combative. Always concerned to preserve and keep the peace and unity. he lists out these three things. And they're good things to commit yourself to. But you can't simply just go out and do it. If I said these three things, you would go out and you would probably fail by tomorrow. So then how do we actually become these kinds of men? Well, it's not as you look deeper into yourself to draw out strength and willpower. But as you look deeper into Christ, because when you gaze at the Savior, and this is what's unique about Christianity, it's not just an ethical system of how you live. But if you actually look at the Savior, what do you discover in him? That he was the perfect man. Jesus was a man of prayer. You read the Gospels. He was always stealing away time to spend with the Lord, even if it meant leaving the crowds and leaving his disciples. In the garden before his crucifixion, at his most desperate and earnest hour, he was crying out and wrestling with God in prayer. Even on the cross, when he had very little breath left, he uttered prayers to his Father. And you see that even in the Son of Man who came to take on flesh, He was not self-sufficient, but he leaned on his father in all circumstances. Jesus was a man of purity, his conduct, his speech, his heart, tempted like us in every way, but unlike us, sinless in every way. The one who needed to be pure so that he could offer his life as a substitute for you to be the spotless lamb. So that through his sacrifice, your hands can be cleaned. Your hearts can be purified. The assurance given to us in Hebrews chapter 10 says, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And lastly, Jesus, was he not a man of peace? The one who came and gave up his life so that, two enemies, sinful man and a holy God might be reconciled, no longer at odds, but brought together was Christ, not our great peacemaker, whose death on the cross overcame the barrier of sin so that the righteous anger of God against our sin would be appeased and we could be mended by his blood. See, men in the church, this is the last thing I'll say to you. If we are to be like what Apostle Paul suggests here in 1 Timothy 2, the calling is not to only look like Jesus, but look to Jesus. Because you don't become like Christ as you try harder. You become like Christ as you behold Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 says, And we all with unveiled face, behold, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Becoming happens through beholding. So are you beholding Christ, that you may become like Christ? When Paul then turns his attention, he addresses now the women of the church. And he writes in verses 9 and 10, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, Paul's point here is simple and clear. Godly women are to concern themselves less with their physical appearance and give more attention to the postures of their heart. Now, just to be clear here, there's nothing wrong with braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire. If your hair is in braid, don't start unbraiding it right now, taking gold rings off. All of these things are good gifts and can be enjoyed to the glory of God. So Paul is not condemning those things. He's not sentencing women to a life, a future, a fashionless style, and suggesting, well, you might as well just wear potato sacks. That's not his calling. It's not a prohibition against style and fashion and dressing well. Paul is speaking and addressing to the priorities of women who seek to be godly, especially in the context of the gathered church. That's the setting of first Timothy two. And it kind of makes sense. Like why would it be wrong to come to church with the goal of dressing to impress? Because what is this worship about? this worship is about God. The glory goes to God. God sits at the spotlight. He's the center of attention. He is the main character on the stage. And yet when a woman comes to church dressed in her finest attire, adorned with her most luxurious, expensive accessories, then what happens? Inevitably, people notice. Now, some people will notice in admiration. Some people will notice in envy. But either way, Paul is saying the church will get distracted from its purpose, the purpose of gathering. And we all understand this, don't we? Have you ever been to a, a wedding? And when, if you've ever been to a wedding, what's the one color you don't wear? You don't wear white. Why not? Well, because you're not the bride. You shouldn't detract from the bride who alone wears the white and walks down the aisle. So too, when the church gathers to give God glory, there shouldn't be competition. There shouldn't be any distraction from him. So rather than focusing on external clothing, Paul instructs women to adorn themselves with what's internal, with what's spiritual. And we know that because he goes on to say, he says, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel but then he doesn't list what qualifies as respectable apparel. He doesn't list out acceptable articles. You can wear a dress, but you can't wear a skirt. You can't wear nail polish that's bright pink, but you can wear muted colors. He doesn't go on to say that. He says, okay, this is what you shouldn't do. What should you seek to do? And then he lists two spiritual qualities with modesty and self-control. Because his point here is simply saying women in the household of God should strive to adorn themselves not with outward garments of beauty, but with the beauty of inward character, godliness. We read something similar that the apostle Peter writes, 1 Peter 3, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So women of the church, a simple question, are you investing in the type of beauty that will fade and be forgotten or the kind of beauty that is imperishable and that time cannot touch? Are you adorning yourself with the kind of beauty that will turn the eyes of men and other women or the kind of beauty that pleases the Lord. For we know Proverbs thirty-one thirty says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Though this pursuit runs totally contrary to the agenda of the world, the agenda of the world that pressures conformity for women to look a certain way and to dress a certain way, our culture is it not obsessed with image, and even more obsessed with making you feel like you need to measure up. And so what is every advertisement? What is every product? It's a false savior promising to give you far more than it can actually deliver. In actuality, these things, they're trying to get you to find your affirmation and forge your identity in external physical things. When all that does is distract you from what God desires to radiate with the beauty of godliness. Now, godliness sounds so internal. It sounds so spiritual, but godliness actually leads to something external because Paul says at the end of verse 10, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And what he means there is that godliness in character leads to good works in conduct. The internal realities will actually manifest themselves externally, but not in the way you think. The world wants you to invest in what's external and physical in the hopes that by covering yourself enough, hiding behind the outside enough, that somehow you'll be made new on the inside. Because the world's message of transformation is outside in. Pursue a new hairstyle some new jewelry, some name brand clothing, then maybe, then maybe you'll feel beautiful inside. Focus on what others can see about you and then maybe with fingers crossed, you'll be accepted. Maybe you'll be noticed. Maybe you'll finally be worthy and lovable. But The gospel works the opposite way. God, by his spirit, promises that transformation is inside out. God makes you beautiful in Christ. He changes your heart, makes you a new creation, sets you apart as holy, sings a song of love over you. And as you live in the reality of the gospel, as you grow in godliness, transformation is inside out. Your inner beauty manifests itself, not in outward good looks, but in outward good works. You know, Paul wrote Ephesians 2 to everybody, but we can apply it in this context, especially to women for we, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And women of Cornerstone, do you believe that you are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, his handiwork? As you grasp that, The outward beauty that matches your inward beauty is seen in what? In committing yourself to good works. So what Paul's vision of a household of God filled with beautiful women, what does that look like? It doesn't look like models from a magazine, but models of godliness and good works. It's to believe the promise and the truth of 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, of course, in saying all this, we know that God does not disregard beauty. He can't. He is beauty. God doesn't disregard beauty. He redefines it. And you see this in the gospel because when God sent forth his son, Jesus, the glorious, beautiful one, came to take on human flesh. Heavenly beauty took on earthly form. And what did it look like? The prophet Isaiah describes the son of man in Isaiah 53. And here's what we read. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You see, to the world, to those with only eyes to see the outward appearance, Jesus was ordinary. He was a person you'd walk by without turning your head once. But to those who had eyes to see, he was extremely and stunningly beautiful. He had the kind of far surpassing beauty that turned the head of the angels, stirred the song of the hosts of heaven, and drew forth the smile of his father. He who had no beauty that the world should desire him had the kind of beauty that the Father delighted in. Jesus had the beauty of godliness that led to good works. In his godliness, blameless before God, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, obedient to God in all things so that in his good work, he could live the perfect life to attain for us a righteousness that God required and to die a sacrificial death to grant us the forgiveness that we needed. You see, there are women of Cornerstone, if you desire to grow in godliness, it's not about working harder or putting in more effort, but looking to Christ in whom beauty is redefined. Because your beauty is not found by what you see on the on- in- outside, but what God is doing on the inside. And then Rejoicing that the best covering, clothing, garb and garment, the Lord has also already provided for you. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Clothed now in Christ, you have a choice every day. You're either going to put on something superficial or you're going to put on something spiritual. What will you put on? Colossians 3 exhorts us put on then, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let me end with this. In the family of faith, God desires there to be godly men and women. And he gives us a glimpse of what this looks like in the household. Men who pray, lifting up holy hands with a pure heart, without anger or quarreling, seeking to keep peace. Women adorning themselves, not with glamorous external apparel, but with what is proper for those who profess godliness and good works. And we'll become this kind of church, not by turning our attention to behaviors, but by turning our attention to behold the Savior. And Jesus, who grants us power by his spirit, will conform us to be the men and the women that he desires. Would you close your eyes and pray with me?